Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop. Welcome to Episode 7 of My Marvellous Melbourne. After a bit of a break, the Melbourne History Workshop team is really excited to be back with some more stories from Melbourne's fascinating history. In this episode, I follow the trail of Melbourne-born popular composer May Bra. Rolly Wettenhall takes us on a tour of the friendly societies of Swanston Street. But first, Helen Morgan has a chat to Mary Sheehan about the impact of Spanish flu in Melbourne in the immediate aftermath of World War I. Free company! Yes! Yes! I'm Helen Morgan, archivist, historian and apparently a misery guts because in keeping with the tradition of my presentations on topics which can hardly be described as marvellous, today I'm talking with historian Mary Sheehan about the Spanish flu pandemic that hit Melbourne 100 years ago in 1919. Mary is a professional historian who has completed multiple commissioned and oral history projects, including nursing at St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne, on the Royal District Nursing Service Oral History Project and a history of airline pilots' union. Mary, it's 100 years since the Spanish flu hit Melbourne and it was devastating. Tell me, why was it called the Spanish flu? Good question, Helen. Spain was neutral during the war. Spanish flu actually broke out, well, it's argued where it actually broke out, but it was hit the Western Front in early 1918. Spain was neutral at the time and had no, um, was unfettered in its reporting of the Spanish flu and they were the first to to publish um, anything about it, particularly given the fact that their king nearly died of of, um, so-called Spanish flu. It's been called a lot of other names. It's been called La Gripe, uh, Naples Soldier, and currently it's been called the Mother of All Infections. Were they calling it the Spanish flu at the time, or is that something we talk about in hindsight now that we we know? It was commonly or regularly called the Spanish flu, along with these other names, uh, La Gripe, Naples Soldier. I don't know about you, but I associate the flu with winter. Is that when the Spanish flu reached its peak in Melbourne? It was, actually, Helen, but it didn't arrive uh, in Melbourne until 1919. The rest of the world had suffered horrible losses uh, as as the pandemic spread around the world. It started in the, the, as I said, on the Western Front, it really took hold in about April, so that would have been coming out of winter there. It arrived in Melbourne in January... 1919, and was immediately virulent. It infected people very, very quickly in large numbers of people. However, the second wave in April, it was the mortality rate from that was far greater than that January first wave. So I guess that was getting into winter too. But it started off in summer in Australia. It's reached Australia. It reached Australia in the summer. The 
maritime quarantine controls had been imposed and so that delayed the arrival of it in, a, in Australia. And it escaped the maritime quarantine controls somehow or other and first diagnosed case was said to be the 9th of January. Well, how did Melbourne prepare for it? It sounds like we knew it was coming. So what did we do here in Melbourne to protect the citizens against the spread of the flu? There was a quite a, a lot of preparation beforehand. As I say, there was the maritime um, quarantine controls, which was a, a huge thing, really, in delaying the arrival of the, the virus. They did prepare, too, in late uh, October, November 1918, in posting advice about Spanish flu, in advising the councils, local government councils, to to prepare, uh, to identify where patients could be looked after, where they could be cared for. There was, and vaccines were starting to be prepared as well. So there's quite a bit of preparation. They sent out um, information on how inhalatoriums could be constructed, um, an inhalatorium being somewhere where people would come in and breathe in a diluted sulphur uh, mixture that was supposedly going to kill the, the virus. Unfortunately, at the time, or sadly at the time, Little or nothing was known about viruses. Viruses weren't really identified until the 1930s when electromagnetic microscopes were invented. So they misunderstood and thought it was a bacteria. You said helatorium? Uh, Inhalatorium, as in Uh, inhalation. Inhale. Yes. Let's just clear that up. I thought you were talking about inhale or (laughs) halatorium, something to do with halitosis. Anyway, um, but tell me, did it change the way people went about their everyday activities? Not in anticipation, but um, certainly after the arrival of of the virus, regulations were introduced which closed hotels initially, then they were allowed to reopen as long as there were no more than 20 patrons in the pub. It closed theatres, picture theatres. There was no gatherings of more than 20 people were allowed. People were allowed to continue worshipping in churches and there wasn't a limit on the number in churches as long as they wore masks. The minister was exempt, though. No gatherings of more than 20 people sounds like a really drastic measure mm. that I imagine would have had a big impact on, on people in Melbourne going about their daily business. Yes, it did. Uh, there were huge problems with union meetings, picnics, union picnics. Schools were closed. Rather, schools didn't return. The children didn't return to school in late January. They didn't go back to school until March. University of Melbourne had outdoor supplementary exams and they delayed starting classes as well. It was a big impact. The other great impact was, I guess, the closing of borders. No travellers from Victoria were allowed into South Australia or New South Wales unless they went through quarantine. Quarantine camps were set up in Albury and various other places. There were people stranded in Melbourne 
um, who couldn't get out. People who had very little money were stranded in Melbourne. It was estimated to be about 200 people were stranded in Melbourne, travellers. That had a huge impact on people, naturally. Uh, And there were very sad stories about a young mother coming to show off her new baby to her parents and being stranded in Melbourne, developing the virus and dying in Mount St Evans Hospital. And her mother subsequently died too. They couldn't get out of the state. The other impact was economic. There was the railways had reduced number of workers. There were a number of uh, factories and places that were closed down. At the border, mail was held up. Perishable produce was held up as well. Uh, just couldn't get through. And there's a huge coal shortage as well. So a lot of businesses couldn't operate. Fortunately, at that time, quite a few were uh, moving over to electricity from coal-produced power. How long did such drastic measures last? The terrible thing with the Spanish flu was that it came in waves. And it must have been terrifying for them. Nobody understood what it was. The doctors could do nothing. And there was a... Uh, nurses were probably the only ones who could do uh, just a normal nursing care was the only only thing that could be done with these very sick patients. It lasted until uh, January, until early March, late February, early March, the first wave. Once the case numbers started to reduce, they must have sighed a sigh of relief that was all over and they started reducing the regulations, etc. But then there was another wave that came in the last week of March for, in April and that was devastating. There were far more deaths occurred in that wave. And they were ill-prepared because a a lot of the hospitals that had been created had reverted to their purpose of operation. So you mentioned hospitals and you said that hospitals were created specifically to deal with the flu. How many hospitals were created? There were about 35 around Melbourne. They had a capacity of about, uh, I think, 1,500. They could cope with about 1,500 patients. The actual public hospitals, existent public hospitals, were inundated. They couldn't cope. The Melbourne Hospital, now Royal Melbourne Hospital, in one day admitted 99 people. It was just overwhelming. This was part of the preparation to identify an emergency hospital that could be established in your area. They were established at Footscray in the Footscray Technical College. Brighton established one in their drill hall. There were others created at at Richmond inner schools. Armadale School was used. So many were were converted to to emergency hospitals. But the real limitation in being able to care for these people was not only an absence of knowledge, but it was also absence of nurses and doctors who hadn't yet returned from the war. And there was a huge shortage. They encouraged anybody with any knowledge of nursing to uh, volunteer to help. Was there an impact? impact among the nursing staff? Did did they get sick too? Yes, they did. At one stage, the Melbourne Hospital, was the Melbourne Hospital then, now it's the Royal Melbourne Hospital, had 38 sick nurses and doctors. Curiously enough, research has been done uh, that indicates, certainly among army 
nurses and medical staff, that the incidence or the mortality among medical staff, including nurses, was lower than it was within the community. And it's thought that this was because they had built up an immunity. I should mention also that the real absolute tragedy of Spanish flu was that it affected the 20 to 45-year-olds and the mortality within that age group was just horrendous. To me, that was an awful tragedy given that Australia had already lost 60,000 during the war. To lose more young adults, nation creators, was, was terrible. How many people died overall in Melbourne? I haven't got the figures for Melbourne. I've got the figures for Victoria. Yeah. And I think they're very conservative. They suggest about 3,500. I have heard it be closer to four to 5,000. The difficulty is in identifying who actually died of Spanish, of the influenza virus. Some doctors would have signed, would have um, provided certificates for any other diagnoses like heart failure or anything like that. There also would be other people who contracted the virus and perhaps died and weren't reported. Could you get this virus and survive? Yes. Oh, that's comforting. (laughs) Um, How did those numbers in Melbourne and in Victoria compare with places overseas? Very well, it was lower. And in Australia uh, and Melbourne, the mortality was was not nearly as great as the rest of the world. And that's largely because of the maritime quarantine controls. There was one other place in the world, and that was Eastern Samoa, which was then mandated to the United States. And they also imposed quarantine controls and and the virus did not break through there. There was... um, in. Just by contrast, in Western Samoa, where there were no quarantine controls imposed, 90% of the population were infected. It was devastating for them. So coming back to the hospitals and the number of hospitals, I've read somewhere that the exhibition buildings became a hospital, and this intrigued me because I I think of the exhibition buildings as a place to go and have university exams and to go and have fun at balls and stamp shows and flower and garden shows. But it was a hospital in 1919. Indeed it was, Helen. It was opened in early February. It was initially intended to be a convalescent hospital. They had planned on moving patients out of the public hospitals as quickly as they could to free up beds and have them convalescent exhibition building. 500 beds were set up within the main hall. Uh, they put electricity in, uh, they put in a kitchen with new stoves, etc. Within weeks, it was necessary to admit the very sick and they increased the capacity to 1,500 beds. They could have made it much larger except for the shortage of staff, people to look after them. I have read an account of a 10-year-old who was hospitalised there with his father and, and brother. And he recalls it as being quite a quite an experience for him. He recalls beds being lined up almost as closely as possible, uh, rows and rows of beds. He remembers porters carrying out dead people day and night 
to and they were taken to a makeshift mortuary in the basement of the exhibition buildings. The exhibition grounds were closed. People, visitors would gather around the main gates of the exhibition building on um, Nicholson Street and wait to see if they could visit their loved ones or hear what their condition was. They were allowed to go in and visit their loved ones when they were dying, but had to be fully masked and gowned before they could do so. I I can't imagine what it would be like being one of those patients in the hospital and being surrounded by people fully masked up all the time. It must have been terrifying for them. must have been terrifying. So, Mary, it's it's been 100 years since the Spanish flu. Is there... Why are you studying it now? Is there something that we don't know? Is there something we can learn from this? What are you expecting to find out in your research or hoping to find out? I guess there's a number of, of factors. The first one is that Spanish flu always attracts a lot of statistical details and there's very little about the individuals who suffered. I like to uncover and find out who they were The other factor is that there were hotspots in Melbourne. Got to ask yourself why. Melbourne itself was the biggest hotspot, but that included North Melbourne and and Carlton. The next hotspot was South Melbourne. Now, you'd have to ask why South Melbourne instead of Port Melbourne, for instance. There were also hotspots around Victoria and Wonthaggy, coal mining area at Warrnambool. And I'm keen to find out what why there were hot spots then, there, at that time. And I think there are lessons to be learned for the present and the future about disease, how it spread, how it can be contained, what worked, what didn't work. Should we have another pandemic? The Spanish flu pandemic, it's estimated to have killed between 50 and 100 million And that very wide range is because uh, statistical data wasn't really well kept in all places. There's an estimate now, if it it was to come back now, it would kill 300 million. There's problems with our travel um, from Australia in 1918, getting to Australia is much slower. Now it can be 24 hours. Uh, There's a lot of interest in influenza and containment and disaster management. I think, um, well, I hope my research will contribute some knowledge and some help to that. What makes a pandemic a pandemic? What's a pandemic? There's an endemic, which is just localised infection, an epidemic, which can be a bit broader, maybe in a city or maybe a country, a pandemic is worldwide. And there was hardly anywhere in the world that was not affected by the Spanish flu. And that was the the really scary thing, that it just couldn't be controlled. And there's a number of reasons why people were more susceptible then and why the young were 20 to 40-year-olds were more susceptible. There was, there was a, a pandemic in late 1890s, about 1898 or something, called they called the Russian flu. And it didn't, it wasn't as devastating because travel just wasn't as easy and there wasn't the movement around the world that occurred during the, the uh, post-war. 
but there's a thought that those who, uh, the older people, developed an immunity to that strain of virus that was has been called the Russian flu. Younger children were affected, but mostly it was that middle age group. Women were particularly affected, uh, pregnant women. And the long-term effects haven't really been determined, but those whose mothers contracted influenza in utero, while they were in utero, also there were far more congenital births in 1920, which is considered to perhaps be a repercussion of the, of the virus. There was also far more, uh, far greater rate of measles infection and diphtheria and suppose because the immunity had been repressed for those who had contracted the virus. Mary, I'm, I'm curious, what, what made you turn around and, and choose the Spanish flu as the subject of research? A number of years ago, I wrote a history of nursing at St Vincent's Hospital. And during my research came across in the annual report, a report of the Spanish flu and the number of patients that had been cared for. At the end of that report, there was the sentence, and one nurse died. And I felt so sorry for this nurse, that she, her anonymity, that she mm. hadn't ever, she'd sacrificed her life looking after sick people, um, very sick people, and died as a consequence. So I started digging around and I found out who she was and then moved on to other projects. A year or so ago, I was commissioned to do another project and was waiting for the commissioning agent to provide information for me so I could progress it. And I started delving into Spanish flu again, and I'm afraid I'm thoroughly infected. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I do have one last question for you, Mary, which is... Have you had your flu shot this yes, season? Yes, indeed I have. And I hope you have, Helen. I have and too, And I hope Mary. anybody listening to this <laughs> podcast will have too. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. That was really illuminating and moving. Thank you. A little while ago, I went to a weeknight work do. You know the sort of thing, one of those events to farewell a few departing staff and to welcome some new ones. It was downstairs off Flinders Lane in a trendy little space, contemporary art on the walls, canapes and a cash bar. And after the usual speeches and thank yous, one of our colleagues took the floor, set up a music stand and began a short impromptu recital on a euphonium. For those of you who can't quite picture what that is, the euphonium is a shiny brass instrument, a bit like a small version of a tuba, with a euphonious or sweet-sounding tone. We were treated to a couple of numbers before being introduced to what was apparently once a very well-known tune, Bless This House by May Bra.
have to say I'd never heard of May Bra or Bless This House. But as it turns out, she was a Melbourne-born composer who had immense success over a long career. Mary, or May as she was known, was born in George Street, East Melbourne, in November 1884. Her father, Richard Dixon, the son of a Scot who came to Melbourne in 1853, was born in the Melbourne suburb of Richmond and by trade was a manufacturer of green ginger wine, cordials, tonics and malt vinegar. May's mother, Maggie, was also a Dixon. In fact, her parents were cousins. She came out from Glasgow in the late 1870s as governess to the family of William Timms, a Western District squatter. May's favourite hiding spot as a very young child was under the family's piano. Maggie was clearly a huge creative influence, teaching her daughter to sing and to play the piano. May used to get up at 6am, do two solid hours of practice before her mother gave her a cold bath and hot porridge for breakfast. May was inspired to pursue a musical career after being taken to see a performance of the Russian-British concert pianist, the 16-year-old sensation Mark Hamburg, which would have been during his 1895 world tour. Reviewing the company's first performance at Melbourne Town Hall, the Argus newspaper was seduced by this young artist and aspirant to fame, who, unless appearances are strangely deceptive, is as yet scarcely more than about halfway through his teens. He had not, however, been on the platform for a minute, the newspaper report continued, before it was made abundantly plain that he is altogether outside the boundaries of the ordinary school of pianism. The 11-year-old May Bra was also clearly under his spell. She was taken to see him after the concert, and he spoke to her very kindly and encouraged her in her ambitions. In 1896, when May was 12, her mother provided a pleasant program of music at the opening by the governor's wife, Lady Brassey, of the new home of the Melbourne District Nursing Society, delighting those present with a rendition of Mignon. Melbourne Punch reported that the little Mrs May and Madge Dixon gained quite an ovation for their recitation A Patchwork Fairy Tale, Lady Brassey congratulating the little performers very warmly. May went to Strathern, a private girls' school in Hawthorne, where later in 1896, at a spring festival in Glenferry put on by the pupils, a concert was given by well-known artists, including May's mother, Mrs Richard Dixon. May's life, however, was to take a difficult turn. In 1898, when May was 13... Her mother died of cancer, aged just 45, and her father's business went under in the economic downturn. May left school, took up work as a governess and piano teacher, and in 1903, still a teenager, married Frederick Charles Bra. That's spelt B-R-A-H-E. Karl Bra was the son of Wilhelm Bra, who had accompanied the explorers Burke and Wills on their ill-fated expedition in 1861. Two sons were born in quick succession, and under the tuition of Alice Rebataro for singing and Mona McBurney for composition, May extended her musical accomplishments and was soon gaining quite some success as a composer. A newspaper clipping from 1911 
reviewed a unique event that had taken place that week. Probably never before in the history of the place has any work, dramatic or musical, had its premiere in Northcote, but such an event happened at the Presbyterian School Hall in connection with an entertainment by the Sunday School Scholars on Thursday evening. It was not a new grand opera to rank alongside the masterpieces of a Wagner or a Donizetti. Still, it was something very important too, seeing that the rising as well as the risen generation has to be entertained. It was a children's cantata entitled The Magic Wood. And when at the conclusion of the piece, the Reverend Mr Rock announced that its writer and composer was present in the audience, and the boys at the back in chorus called out, Who do we want to see? Why, the author? There was quite a thrill of excitement, which was accentuated when Mrs M. H. Bra went on the platform to receive the plaudits of the crowded audience. The piece is decidedly out of the common and will be a very welcome addition to the list of school cantatas. Bra later credited Ormond Professor of Music Marshall Hall as an early mentor. Melbourne firm Allen & Co regularly published her compositions from 1910, including a Japanese love song with words by May's sister Madge, and they advised her to go to London to try her luck. The newspapers described the 28-song programme at her farewell concert at the Masonic Hall in March 1912 in terms of graceful melody, unobtrusively and simply accompanied, with no striving after effect, no tearing of a passion to tatters. The by now well-known Australian songwriter, armed with letters of introduction, left her husband and two young boys in Melbourne and found herself playing piano in a silent movie theatre in the Strand to make ends meet. Fairly quickly, she signed publishing deals with a number of London firms, and in 1915, the famous English contralto Dame Clara Butt recorded May's song, Down Here, Oh It's Quiet Down Here, a song of refuge in a war-torn time. Published in 1916, I Passed By Your Window was another huge hit. May's husband was away in West Africa fighting the Germans, but was killed in a car accident in 1919, soon after his return from the war. So May had to support her children on the sales of her sheet music. Then in 1922, she married George Morgan, a Melbourne actor and singer. In 1927, May composed the music for Bless This House, with words by Helen Taylor, an English lecturer with whom she ended up having a long collaboration. An article in New Idea in 1954 explained Bra and Taylor's inspiration for the song. One day they saw a newspaper report about a group of white Russian emigres who had opened a shop in London's Bond Street and in conformity with the old Russian custom had called in a priest of the Russian Orthodox Church to bless the shop. The newspaper story went on to relate how a new shop or a new house in the old Russia was always blessed by the priest. The song was actually originally called Bless The House, but was changed to Bless This House just prior to World War II on advice from the Irish tenor John McCormick to make it more personal. 
When the war came and the Germans started bombing London, recalled music publisher Leslie Boosey, it might have been written for the occasion. The song became Bra's signature hit, a musical evergreen, particularly in America, where, with its quasi-religious overtones, it became a favourite of the Eisenhowers, as well as, more generally, at Thanksgiving. Bless This House sold two million copies, and according to May, was played at President Roosevelt's funeral. In Australia, it's notable as the second most recorded song behind Waltzing Matilda. Over the course of the 20th century, it was recorded by everyone from the Ballarat YWCA Choir and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir to Peter Dawson, Gracie Fields, Perry Como, Vera Lynn, Bryn Turfell and Joan Sutherland. May also wrote The Twilight of the Years for Nellie Melba, a tune carefully composed so as not to put too much strain on the ageing diva's voice. May later recalled Melba as a very warm-hearted, kind woman. She was a very downright person. Look here, Maybra, she would often say during our talks. Her simplicity was extraordinary. A shop bargain could excite her like any other woman. I have never seen such enthusiasm as hers over a piece of silk that she bought one day at a low price. Always helpful to Australians, she did her best to introduce to the right quarters those who sought her help. Maybra returned to Australia with her youngest son in 1939, at the outbreak of a war which she failed to stop with her song, Oh Pray for Peace, and in 1940 was booked for a series of talks on the ABC's Woman's Hour on the topic of My Struggle. She felt like Rip Van Winkle returning to her homeland after 28 years. There were no spires on St Paul's or St Patrick's when I left, and no skyscrapers. The cable trams still went along St Kilda Road, and though the electric trams had made an appearance, I think there were only two short lines. My first impression of Melbourne on returning was that of vivid colour and light, and the impression has stayed with me. Perhaps it is because of the contrast to our blackouts in London. Anyhow, Australia seems a very happy land, and long may it remain so. She died in Sydney in 1956, having written over 500 songs over the course of her career, as well as some musicals and operettas for children. While her popular ballads were sometimes criticised as being hackneyed, overly sugary, saccharine perhaps, as musician and music historian Kay Dreyfus noted, Maybra was the most successful Australian songwriter of her generation because of her intuitive feeling for what the public wanted. Bra was also one of the very first Australian composers to feature prominently in the early catalogues of the music industry. Better known in England and the US, she was still very much an Australian composer. Her Real Australian Children's Songs, published in Melbourne by Allen & Co., with words written by her sister Madge Dixon, included I Wish I Were a Possum, The Bad Wicked Dingo and The Bunyip. I have composed many of my best songs at the kitchen sink. A man composer protected by his wife may lock himself away in his study and work for hours, but a woman, no. There are so many calls on her time. Even if she has domestic help, she must supervise the housekeeping as well as carry on her music. Many a time I've been called away from a composition with the maids, 
Please, ma'am, the butcher's here. What do you want to order for today? It's interesting to note that May Bra published a great deal of her music under a range of pseudonyms, including Eric Faulkner, Wilbur B. Fox, Stanley Dixon, George Pointer and Mervyn Banks. This was partly because publishers were loath to publish more than four of her songs in any one year. But also, according to Janelle Carrigan, author of Composing Against the Tide, because some publishers would in fact renege on offers made to women composers, and also that it would give her the opportunity to write in different styles from the one she was recognised for, for example, when writing songs with masculine nuances. Melbourne historian Mimi Colligan wrote an entry on Maybra for the Australian Dictionary of Biography in 1979, and I thought I'd ask Mimi a little bit more about May's life and work. Um, I'd heard her from a child on the radio, not her, but her music. Um, Bless this house, O oh Lord, we pray, etc. And it was my first article for the ADB when I, I was working for it as a researcher in Melbourne, the Victorian researcher. I interviewed her father-in-law, in um, was East Malvern back then, and I was impressed because on his mantel shelf, Pete, uh, over his fireplace, he had a portrait of Wilhelm Bra. And then I did the usual biographical things, asking what do you do next and what was the probate. Uh, one of the uh, things I had to fight for in that biography, 500 words, was that she had. Uh, gone to England, leaving three of her, two of her children, and she, uh, to earn money, she played in a cinema. I think that's very important from a point of view, woman on her own, perhaps foolish, but she had some sort of strength or whatever. One of the things I, I'm blaming myself for, I didn't think about her lyricist, who was Helen Taylor. So, but they had a very long relationship. And how do I know those songs? Because as a child, I had very bad asthma and I listened to the radio a lot. Didn't go to school, but went to listen to the radio. And I'm exaggerating perhaps, but perhaps scarcely a day went by when you didn't hear Bless This House, The Piper From Over The Way, or um, It's Quiet Down Here and goodness no, oh, I passed by your window. <laughs> it, it was very popular, uh, certainly by the, my memories in the 40s on the radio as a, a little child. And in the early well, 50s and even maybe in the 60s occasionally you'd, you'd hear it on the radio or someone would refer to it or it'd be at some function it might be played or sung it, during the First World War. And then until 1939, she was collaborating with Helen Taylor. And that's when she, she got really well known. And it seems to be, in Australia anyway, uh, that her the songs composed uh, with, with Taylor as lyricist were more popular. As it happens, May's son Alec was interviewed in 1975 by Peter Burgess, and he opens another window into his mother's career. My mother inherited her 
musical talents from her mother. Uh, she was made familiar with good music from her very earliest days, and this continued till the, she was 13 years of age when her mother died. Uh, thereafter, the family were in bad way financially, and my mother scraped her a living by teaching the piano, uh, in which she, on which she was a very talented performer. She had my mother had uh, an elder brother, Arthur Dixon, a younger sister named uh, Margaret Elizabeth Lucas Dixon, uh, who was a distinguished headmistress in in Melbourne, being the headmistress of Coral Girls School, uh, and uh, a younger sister who died in infancy in tragic circumstances. I think she, she was very advanced, uh, precocious uh, girl from all accounts, uh, and uh, I think she just scratched a living teaching music pretty well on them. Must have been close to starvation level. Mm. It's not until uh, 1910 that uh, my father was persuaded, he was not a man of any means, but he was persuaded to let her go to England to sound out what the possibilities were, or the possibilities were of. Uh, uh, exploiting her talents as a composer. I don't know how she managed to do it, to uh, sort of throw her children, including myself, <laughs> into the arms of their grandmother, and, and off she went. Yeah. Helen Taylor, she must have been a very gifted oh, gift person. person. Gifted with letters, letters mm. and doubtless. Mm. She married a Rothschild ultimately, but not a wealthy one. Mm. The, the, in, in composing, in, at that period, uh, what came first? Did your mother ever say that the lyrics came first or the, or the, the lyrics melody? always came first. So they'd select the right lyrics and then write the, the melody around it. She'd go through a pile that thick and, and uh, something would appeal to her. Yeah. How, how, how much of her time did she spend writing? Uh, it was a, uh, she'd work in bursts. Um, if, she, if she was in the mood for, for work, she, She'd start in the morning and go till any hour of night. Could you uh, give me an idea of what sort of a person your mother was? Uh, well, she was very outgoing, uh, uh, could never see the dark side. Uh, uh, even when uh, things were extremely grim financially, she never had any doubt about her own ability to succeed, and and she ended up, as it turned out, uh, with uh, considerable success in America, uh, which put financial worries uh, aside. You mean her, her songs sold very well there? They did, mm -hmm. particularly uh, one song called Lester's House. Oh, yes. uh, President Roosevelt, who must have been an extremely sentimental man, mm. uh, used to encourage the singing of this song, uh, probably to bolster up public morale. Mm. Uh, and it's caught on in America, and 
is used more or less uh, as a sort of a family hymn. Mm. Back to that haunting song, the favourite of presidents, a domestic hymn of protection to walls and roof and chimney. I wonder how its subject resonated with May Bra when she composed the music in 1927, at about the same age that her mother had been when she died. Maybe she remembered the mentor and protector who'd lain in bed in their Hawthorne home for nine months before losing her battle with cancer. But perhaps that song was also resonant of another loss that was buried inside her. Sometime after midday, on Sunday the 2nd of October, 1892, servant Florence Gilbertson placed May's little sister Emily in her cot in the upstairs nursery of their Riversdale Road home in Hawthorne, having taken off the little girl's boots and tucked her under a blanket, as was her custom. At around 2pm, Richard Dixon went upstairs to fetch a book. Smelling smoke but unsure where it was coming from, he went downstairs, but feeling nervous, went back up again, opened the door of the nursery and to his horror found it full of smoke so dense that he could not enter. He rushed to get water and to raise the alarm, just as Mrs Dixon, the nurse and two visitors who were in the home at the time, rushed into the room to find the cot in flames. The windows were thrown open, the little girl wrapped in a blanket, but the damage was done, and little Emily died at seven o'clock the following morning, aged two years and three months. The inquest found that there had been a box of matches in the drawer of a mirror on the toilet table in reach of the cot. Bless this house, O Lord, we pray. Make it safe by night and day. Maybra was eight years old when her little sister died, the exact age, according to one biographical account, that she wrote her first song, a song for her mother to sing. For May Bra, perhaps there were never the words to describe her family's losses, but in her music, she buried a keepsake of their memory. I want to take you on a little journey down Swanson Street, the spine that runs through the middle of Melbourne. We're going to explore three unusual buildings that are visible from the street. Along the way there are tales of gangsters and murders, Robin Hood and his merry men, and wizards with flowing beards. My name is Rolly Wettenhall. Let's get started. It's autumn in Melbourne. The trams are clattering their way up Swanson Street towards the State Library. Everyone has their heads down trying to hide from the cold, blustery wind that is chasing leaves along the tram tracks. This gale of weather, howling through the columns of the State Library entrance, is doing what it always does in autumn, stripping the leaves from the plane trees that line this long thoroughfare from the old Carlton Brewery to the Yarra River. 
With the leaves falling from the trees, it's possible to see many of the buildings along Swanson Street that have been hidden from view during the past spring and summer. On the lawns of the State Library, a statue of Governor Latrobe looks forlorn. The feathers on his hat would be blowing in the wind if they were real. Upright, sword by his side, he is standing on his own, with the wind gusting all around the statue. No passers-by want to keep his company. Behind him, across Latrobe Street, a white two-storey building glistens through the spindly boughs of a plane tree. No one is looking up at the shiny paintwork. But if you did look up, you'd surely stop with wonder at the colourful characters and images adorning the front facade. The gold lettering announces this is the Forester's Hall. There are initials AOF, the words District Chambers, then initials UMD. Additionally, three words appear through the leaves, Unitas, Benevolentia, Concordia. Higher still, as if crowning the facade, is a magnificent shield, a coat of arms in gold, red and green. There are two supporters on either side of the shield, just as we see the emu and kangaroo supporting the Australian coat of arms. But there is something different altogether. The two supporters are bearded men, looking for all the world like medieval hunters from old England, perhaps even Sherwood Forest. Forester's Hall? Sherwood Forest? Have you got it yet? There, Robin Hood and Little John. This Forester's Hall was the Melbourne headquarters of the AOF, the Ancient Order of Foresters Friendly Society. This was an early 19th century society that had set up in Melbourne and provided medical, sickness and funeral benefits to members who paid a fortnightly contribution. This was before pensions, sick pay and unemployment benefits were available to workers. The members attended a fortnightly meeting that was also a social occasion to meet and enjoy each other's company, often to have a few drinks and a meal and perhaps discuss matters of the day. Their Latin motto, Unitas Benevolentia Concordia, translates as unity, benevolence, concord. These three words are a common theme for all friendly societies. The societies had a unity of purpose. It was important for them not to admit outsiders who did not support the principles of thrift, self-help and mutually assisting themselves and others in the community. They aspired to have a benevolent attitude towards causes that would benefit others, especially hospitals and other worthy institutions. Meetings were required to be held in an atmosphere that was tolerant of other views and the rules frequently required that matters such as politics or religion were not to be discussed at the formal meetings. Being built in 1888, Forester's Hall is a wonderful example of the 1880s boom-style architecture of Melbourne and fortunately was saved from the wreckers' ball that was so often used during the 1970s and 1980s as well as the letters AOF. To ensure only members attended the meetings, there would have been guardians at the upstairs hall doors who would have requested a password from each person seeking admission. So who were the members of these friendly societies? Well, just about anybody. Everyone from prime ministers to the labourers working on the roads. You just needed to be earning an income to be able to afford the contributions to cover yourself and the family just like having private health insurance today. The meeting places were frequently called lodges. Although difficult to prove, it's apparent that when people talk about Grandfather being a Freemason because he went to lodge, 
He may in fact have been a member of the Oddfellows, a forester, a free gardener or a Hibernian. But they had no association with the Freemasons. Over 2,700 branches of friendly societies were set up in Victoria between 1839 and 1920, but today they virtually exist in name only. You might see a neon sign on top of a building on the corner of Elizabeth and Collins Streets. IOOF lights up the night sky, but the independent order of Oddfellows no longer operates. But let's move on. I'm caught up in the crowd of the peak hour rush. It's autumn, it's Melbourne. It's time for a coffee. As we prepare to turn right into Swanson Street, we can spy the Druid's Cafe across the road offering warmth from the chill wind. But standing at the intersection, let's look up at the building. Good heavens. A huge old man is looking down from the 11-storey building, his wise gaze surveying the passing traffic. It's a statue of an old bearded man in long robes, looking all the world like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. This time it's not a wizard, it's a druid holding a long staff topped with a crescent moon. Like Robin Hood and Little John from Sherwood Forest, this statue is announcing this building was the home of the United Ancient Order of Druids Friendly Society. Built in 1926, this was their national headquarters. One of the famous old neon signs of Melbourne still exists. Join the Druids emblazons the south side of the building. Despite the name, these Druids were not a secret society. Famously, one high-profile member in Britain was a young Winston Churchill. They wore sashes and badges of rank when attending meetings. When they participated in the many holiday picnics that occurred in local towns and suburbs, they wore fake long beards and white flowing robes. In the entranceway of the building, we can see a five-sided pentagram set in a mosaic on the floor. That symbol and the crescent moon held by the Druid statue are again motifs that form part of the background story for the name of this friendly society, commonly known as the Druids. Refreshed by the creamy latte from the Druids Cafe, it's time to head down Swanson Street towards the Yarra River. Three blocks down on the corner of Collins and Swanson Streets rises one of Melbourne's architectural marvels, the much-loved Manchester Unity Building. Its dark, honey-coloured Art Deco facade contrasts with the basalt greys and dull colours of the other buildings around the intersection. The buttresses supporting the tower create a cathedral-like quality, miniature versions of those on the now-devastated Notre-Dame Cathedral in Paris. This building was the home of the Manchester Unity Independent Order of Oddfellows Friendly Society. It's an Art Deco building that is much loved by Melburnians for the way it stands tall and proud, with hundreds of tiny windows looking down onto the town hall and the busy Collins Street intersection. These windows suggest a beehive of activity. Seeking shelter, we're drawn into an arcade in the lift foyer, the ceiling and walls of which are adorned with frescoes, amazing plaster reliefs and mosaics portraying symbols of the society. But the centre of attention is the lift doors. Three sets of magnificent bronze doors, each with eight square panels. They are beautifully cast with eucalyptus leaves in the corner of each panel. Very Australian and telling us that the Manchester Unity in Victoria was founded in 1840. 
This is one of the state's earlier institutions, and today the name is perpetuated in the company Australian Unity. Such is the grandeur of this building, the boardroom has been fully restored to its original glory. The board table is nearly six metres long and the glass top weighs 330 kilograms. The whole boardroom features the finest Australian timbers. Did I mention a beehive of activity before? Another panel features the Society's coat of arms, included in which is a beehive, a symbol of unity and industry. There was plenty of industry in this building. The tenants have changed over the years, but beauty salons, tailors and jewellers have been the haunt for many well-known Melburnians. On any one day, you might have bumped into former Governor-General Sir Paul Haslark, the Lord Mayors of Melbourne, former Prime Ministers Harold Holt and Malcolm Fraser, and perhaps Dame Edna Everidge, disguised as Barry Humphreys. TV personalities were many and frequent. To walk around this lift foyer and the arcade is to see what could have been a movie set for a Chicago gangster film. The marble floor and walls, the bronze trimmings around the shop windows. Speaking of Chicago, amazingly, the word gangster is appropriate for this fabulous building. With a blaze of publicity, the building became caught up in the famous 1935 Pajama Girl case. Linda Agostini, a hairdresser on the eighth floor, was found murdered in Albury. This remained one of the great unsolved murder cases into the 1940s. Police kept her body in a glass formalin-filled case for ten years before she was finally identified. Stories of flashes, conmen and the occasional suicide were whispered in the passageways. Mobsters were seen leaving their tailors. Buffed Bradshaw, Freddie the Frog Harrison and most famously James Pretty Boy Walker had their suits specially tailored to fit their weapons and stolen goods. Then came St Patrick's Day, 1978, the Manchester Unity Murders. Three men, two jewellers and an innocent visitor were murdered execution style with the killers escaping with eight cut diamonds of enormous value. Theft or an insurance scam gone wrong? No one knows. Having failed to produce solid evidence from the early leads, the murders remain one of the great cold cases in the Victorian police files. Perhaps the truth is already buried. The prime suspect, Alex Sakmarkus, was later convicted of another murder and armed robbery. But in 1988, ten years later, he was killed in prison by Craig Minogue, the Russell Street bomber, using a pillow filled with gym weights. What a way to go. Well, now here ends our journey down Swanson Street. There's only one thing to do. I suggest another coffee downstairs in the Manchester Unity Arcade. My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources and contact details at our website, mymarvellousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you.